You are listening to a message from City Church of Richmond, located in Richmond, Virginia. We are a broken people, loved by God, continually restored by Christ, and sent out to worship God, serve our city, and work for its renewal. To learn more about City Church and to find out how to get connected to our community, visit our website at citychurchrva.com. That's C-I-T-Y-C-H-U-R-C-H-R-V-A.com. And thanks for listening. All right. Well, if you would, please go ahead and take a seat. And we're going to continue our worship this afternoon. My name is Harrison Ford. I'm one of the pastors here. And it's a pleasure to be with you this afternoon. Uh, Myself and Eric, the, the other pastor, we spent the past week in Memphis, Tennessee, at PCA General Assembly, our denomination's big meeting, and we are very grateful that we have a guest speaker (laughs) this Sunday. Um, So we have with us the Reverend Marty Cates. Uh, Marty is a native son of Virginia, Virginia Tech grad, where he lived with a number of people in our church, uh, many of whom aren't here today. (laughs) Um, So I don't know what that says, Marty. But he uh, has, after a time in the corporate world, he has been a pastor at um, Sycamore Pres down in Midlothian. But most recently, he has been sent out by our presbytery to plant a church in Amelia. So we're very grateful that he can be with us today and to share more with us from God's Word. So please clap and welcome him up. Thank you. Thank you, Harrison. Uh, it's a joy to, to be here. Uh, he said this afternoon, I'm not sure, it's like, is 4 o'clock afternoon or is that evening? Is there like debate about that? I'm not sure. Like my kids are starting to get ready for bed about this time usually, so it's, it feels like evening, but you know, maybe I'm just old and go to bed early. I don't know. Um, but it's a joy to be here. As he said, I am a church planner in Amelia County. If you're not familiar with uh, Virginia or where Amelia County is, uh, we're southwest of, of Richmond. If you head down Chesterfield and Route 360 and just start driving uh, west, you'll hit Amelia County. Um, you'll drive through it. Uh, you won't realize you were there. Um, there's two stoplights uh, in Amelia County that, that are like red, you know, and green and yellow, and, and then there's one blinking light. So we got three, three stoplights in the county, a big deal. Um, just this weekend, grand opening, the Amish store opened on Genito Road out there. Everyone's really excited. They have great sandwiches. Um, we're going to be uh, in John chapter 2 uh, this evening, so if you have uh, your bulletin uh, or uh, your Bible, you can turn there, um, and before we uh, read together, just to kind of give us an idea of where we're at, uh, John chapter 2 is kind of when, when, the, when Jesus' ministry gets started. Uh, John kind of centers his uh, gospel uh, around seven signs that happen in Jesus' life, and the first of those happens in John chapter 2, and so that's where we'll be. Uh, this uh, evening or afternoon. So before we read uh, together from John 2, let's go to the Lord uh, in prayer. Most gracious Heavenly Father, we come to you this afternoon to ask that you would bless uh, the reading and preaching of your word. Uh, That you would open our ears and our hearts and our minds that we might hear uh, from your word. That you, O Holy Spirit, would be at work uh, revealing to us the word incarnate, Christ Jesus and the good news of the gospel. Would you use uh, your word to strengthen us and encourage us, uh, to challenge us and to bring us to the cross 
to grow our faith and our love for you. And we might pursue the righteousness of your kingdom. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right, so John chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. And Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. And his mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. And Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first. And when the people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This is the first of his signs that Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. This is God's word. It's without error in any part. It's given for our good and for his glory. So as we we turn to this passage, it's the first of his signs. And whenever something's the first sign, you know, signs are something that point us to something greater. They give us directions when we're we're trying to get somewhere. We just had a sign in baptism, as Eric explained it to us. We have a sign that we'll take later here at the table the Lord's Supper, signs point to something beyond themselves. Not just what they are, but, but they bring our attention to something greater than just them. And so as Jesus performs this first sign, he's pointing to something and, and giving his insight to something that's greater than just what is happening. And so as we look this evening at this, this two things that it's pointing us to is, who is Jesus for? And who's this party for? And then second, what is he all about? So first, who is Jesus for? Well, we, we read in this passage that it happens in Cana in Galilee. And if we were living in the ancient Near East at the time this happened and someone said that and we weren't from that area around Cana of Galilee, we'd probably wonder, I don't really know where that's at. Scholars today aren't really sure where Cana in Galilee is. They have four pretty good guesses, right? They put them on a map and, and they tell us this, it's one of these four. The Franciscans, they built a wedding chapel at, at one of them and said, this is it. But Scholars would say, maybe that's a little presumptive of them to do. It's a no-name place. It's not a place that, that outside of this wedding we would remember. And yet this is where Jesus does his first miracle. Second, it's, the guest list is pretty uh, lacking for detail. Right? The only person that's named in this passage in John chapter 2 is Jesus. Now, as you know, good readers of English, we can, uh, you know, deducted from, from reasoning a little bit in context who his mother is. We know her name, and we know the name of his disciples. They've just been called by him in John chapter 1. But they're the only ones that we have any clue who they are. So we have a, a wedding that's happening in a, in a no-name place. And we know these places, right? You, you, you get off a highway in, in the Commonwealth, and you take a back road, and you drive through them, and you don't realize it. right? You, you see a little green sign on the side of the road. It might say something like, like Truxillo or, or Tobaccoville, and you... You drive through a four-way stop, there's a country store that's run down and, and, and no longer operating, and then you move on and you're through it. That's Cana. It's insignificant. 
no one cares that that place even exists any longer. Yet it's here that Jesus shows up among people who we don't have their names. We don't even know the, the name of the bride and the groom. We don't have a clue whose wedding this is. It's a no-name town and it's a no-name place. And that matters because we are people who long for significance. So when we hear of things that are being done for the people that are insignificant, we wonder why they're not being done for us. We long for significance. We, we, we long for it in, in, in our work. We, we, we long to show it in, in our money. We long for it in our kids. Right? Those places in life where we looked for significance when we were younger and we failed. We begin to push our kids into them hoping that they will maybe earn us a little bit of significance. I was a subpar athlete in high school. I really hoped that as my wife and I began to have kids, I'd have an, a son that would be a stellar athlete. And I have three daughters and none of them are athletic. Um, our oldest is a genius. She's a, a, a musical like prodigy, her piano teacher says. I, I don't care. I, was not, I, I wanted her to be an athlete. Like I wanted to pay all the thousands of dollars for travel ball and to hear how great she was going to be. Um, and that's not going to happen. We, we put her in soccer at a young age and it was, it was a miserable experience for her and everyone else there. But, but we do that, right? We, we use our kids trying to earn that, that, that level of significance that we long for. We do it in our careers. We do it in all kinds of places. And, and what we know is that what happens with that is that our longing for significance, it makes us sick. It makes us envious. It kills relationships. It makes us quick to anger. A great example of this, there's a television show that just finished its final season, its final episode, so spoiler alert if you haven't caught up with it. But the, 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 the character kind of arc of this one, one character, you, you meet him on the, the, the pilot, his name is Nate, and he's insignificant. He's just the kit man. And, and, and no one even knows his name. The, 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 the owner of the team doesn't know his name and is like, who is this? And then as he begins to get a little bit more uh, significant throughout the story, he begins to long more and more for greater significance, greater respect. And it, it turns his heart black, right? I mean, he just becomes evil. By the end of the second season, we all hate him. And then we get to the third season, and, and, and what happens is he begins to find significance and love and respect, not in how great of a soccer coach he is, but from this hostess at the favorite restaurant of his. His, his father shows up after his panic attack and breakdown and, and says that he loves him and respects him, and all of a sudden it softens him. He begins to find significance in things that actually bring significance, not just in his own work, and it softens him. That's what happens with us. When, when, when we long for significance and we, we, we slave away at work and, and, and pour ourselves into things that we think are going to bring us respect and significance, they kill us. But when we find significance in the true source that brings significance, it brings rest. And that's what we see here, that these no-name people in this no-name place, they, they, they're, they're insignificant, they're lowly. And yet Jesus shows up. And some of you are here this, this afternoon, and, and you need to hear this, because you think Jesus doesn't care. You think God doesn't care. That you, you think you're not significant enough for him to show up in your problems. Show up in your life, in your hurts, in your struggles. And yet here he is showing up in a place that no one knows among people who aren't named to change water into wine, to make sure the party goes on. I think if he shows up there, he'll show up in your life, in your hard spots. 
It's not just that, but there's some of you that need to hear the other side of it. You've found significance. You, 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 you've ascended your, in your career. You've, you've done the things that, that people look for, and you are significant. You've, you've started a business, and, and it's gone well. You need to hear that that significance is fleeting. That your time at the top will end. That the business that you built will be someone else's. That the wealth that you have obtained, it won't go with you. In a few generations, people won't even remember where you're buried. It's a movie that just, uh, probably been out for a couple months now. It's on Amazon Prime. And there's a scene in it. It's a story of Nike and their recruitment of Michael Jordan. Uh, and the scene is, is, is Jason Bourne is, is pitching to the Jordan family why he should come to Nike. And he's giving everything he's got to it. And, and he says this, and I'm going to read this quote from it. And he says, a shoe is just a shoe until somebody steps into it. And then it has meaning. The rest of us just want a chance to touch that greatness. We need you in these shoes, not so you know meaning in your life but so that we have meaning in ours. Now, I don't know who Jason Bourne's portraying in this movie. I don't know the name of the executive at Nike who was recruiting Michael Jordan. Um, and, and I even forget, I know the name of the actor's not Jason Bourne, but when I see him, <laughs> that's who I think it is. Like, I just thought maybe Jason had finally given up on the whole, like, special ops thing He's retired, he's put a little weight on, gotten a little gray in the hair, and he's, he's joined corporate America, and he's pitching Michael Jordan. But that's the thing, is that this executive's right, that, that one day all of them in that room will be forgotten. One day even Michael Jordan will just be a name in some record books. No matter how high we ascend, it's fleeting. It won't last and it wears you out and works you to death. Because true and lasting significance is not found in our own labors. It's found in Jesus. Right, this, this wedding would have been long forgotten. And yet here we are, 2,000 years later, still talking about it. Why? Because Jesus was there. Because Jesus showed up. Because Jesus did something in the lives of this couple. See, it's in relationship with him, it's in closeness with him that we find significance. My verse 11 says that he manifested his glory. And in manifesting his glory, what he does is he brings significance. He manifests his glory in us when he calls us unto himself. And he rescues us out of our sin, out of our suffering, restores us. It's in that that we find significance. Well, how? How, how do we live in, in in his love and rest in this significance. Well, it tells us in, in John 2, right? The first is in verse 5. Mary says to the servants what, what, to do what he says. She tells to Jesus, hey, they've, they've run out of wine. He says, what's this got to do with me? She turns to the servants, just ignores him, turns to the servants and says, do whatever he tells you to do. In the close of, of this narrative, it says uh, that the disciples then what? That they believed in him. So his glory is manifested in us as we have faith in him. And as then we live out that faith in him by, by practicing what he's called us to. Living out that faith. So Jesus, he loves the no names. He loves the insignificant. 
He loves the lowly. And in his love, he gives us significance. That's who he's for. Secondly, this passage points us to what he's all about. This passage acts like a, a stump speech in a lot of ways. You know, Harrison said, I'm a child of Virginia. Um, I, I, I am a son of Virginia. My, my family's been in the Petersburg area for a really long time. And, um, you know, not, not quite as long as those who are part of like the, the Jamestown, you know, families, first families. We're, I like to say we're the boat that rescued them. Um, but the, the Kate showed up sometime in the, the 1660s to, to Virginia. And um, so it's a big deal that, that we're Virginians. When I decided to go to seminary and leave Virginia, I have a great uncle that like thought I was the black sheep of the family, like disowned me. Did not understand why I would go to seminary somewhere outside of the Commonwealth. And I was like, have you never left Virginia, Uncle Bill? Like, this is weird. Well, we got a lot of weird things in our state. And one of them is this beautiful tradition of the shad planking in Wakefield, where all these potential political candidates gather, and they get a chance to, to kind of pitch why they should be the candidate, right? Why I should be the one you vote for. And they get to make old-fashioned stump speeches. It's not on a stump, it's up on a stage, but they get to make that kind of pitch. And a stump speech is just laying out, this is what I'm about, this is what I'm going to be for, here's what I'm running on. And that's what Jesus is doing here. It's the first sign. He, he, he's giving the, the stump speech and he's saying, this is what I'm about. He's already told us who he's for and this is what I'm about. And what he does is he shows us uh, in three things what he is about. He's got a concern for joy. He, he, he has a, a mission of abundance. And then he's about something far greater than what he's doing here in this passage. So he's a concern for joy. Throughout Scripture, wine is a symbol of joy. You see it in the Psalms, that, that, that wine is to bring joy. You use wine to gladden the hearts of men. And so here we have this story where they've run out of wine. That's a big deal. Right? You ever been to a party that runs out of food, runs out of drink? It kills the party. It's why if you've ever you know, planned a wedding or been in the process or maybe you're currently planning your wedding, you want to know how many people are going to show up. Right? If you forget to RSVP, somebody's going to call you, email you, track you down, and ask, hey, we, we sent you an invite. We haven't heard from you yet. Do you want the chicken or the seafood or the vegetarian option? Just We need to know. Because they want to have enough food. And they want to have enough drink. When, when you run out of those things, it kills the party. And so they've run out, and Jesus steps in, and he's, he's the restorer of life, but as the restorer of life, he also restores the life of the party. And it's not just with any wine, but it's with good wine. Right, they're the master of the feast, right? And verse 10 says what? That, that he tastes it, and he doesn't know where it's come from, and he calls to the bridegroom, uh, and, and he says, most people give the, the, the good wine first before everybody's drunk freely. And what he's really saying, most people give the good wine first when you can taste it, and then after everyone's drunk enough, we serve the cheap stuff. Because you can't taste it anymore. Right? You drink top shelf at the beginning of the night. You drink, you know, bottom shelf by the end of the night. But you've saved the best for last. You've saved the best for last. He, he, he has this concern that they, they have the best for last. Why? Because he knows that what's coming, not just at this party, not just at this wedding, but in all of eternity, the best is reserved for last. Right, on on that, that great and glorious day when he returns and we are ushering him back to earth that he might restore all things anew, the best will be for last. It's just a picture of that. He doesn't just restore joy, but he does it in abundance. Right, it says that there's these six stone jars. 
they hold 20 to 30 gallons apiece. And he turns them all from water into wine. Six stone jars, 20 to 30 gallons. It's about 1,000 bottles of wine that Jesus produces for this wedding. Now, we don't know how far into the, the wedding celebration they were. Wedding celebrations at that time could be a couple days. They could be a week. But even if it's the, the, the second day or the third day of the wedding, they only have a few more days to go. They probably haven't drunk 1,000 bottles of wine so far at this party, and he's giving them 1,000 bottles of wine to finish the party. I mean, they're going home with the greatest wedding favors ever, right? A bottle of wine from Jesus himself. Psalm 23 says that, that our cup overflows. Yeah, I'd say so. Jesus says later in, in the Gospel of John that he comes to give life, and he comes to give life to the full, to give it abundantly. Boy, does he. Boy, does he. And it, it's not just that, that he turns water into wine in abundance. It's that he shows us grace and mercy in abundance. He continually pours out new morning mercies each and every day into our hearts, into our lives. That the Holy Spirit each and every day wrestles with us to remind us of the good news of the gospel. That Christ died for us. Christ lays himself down for us in abundance. So he restores joy and he, he does it with abundance, but he points to an even greater work to come. He says to his mother, my hour has not yet come. And that's a, the, the, the hour that's to come is this theme that runs through the Gospel of John. And, and for the first half of John, it's constantly, it's not yet time, it's not yet time. And then about John 12, it flips and the hour has come and, and we get the last part of his life that leads to the cross. But even here at his first sign, at the first miracle he does, he already has the picture of that in his mind. That he is on a, a mission that even now colors his mindset and who he is and what he's about. And so he says to her, my hour has not yet come. This, this hour, this end that he has is full of suffering. It's full of anguish and grief. And he goes to the cross to bear our sins. And these six stone jars that are full of this water, I have to remember they're, they're for the rites of purification, for this outward cleansing that they are to do. Because without faith, that's all it is. Without faith, it just washes the grime, the dirt away. And as Jesus turns these six stone jars into, into wine, I can't help but wonder, six is not a complete number in Scripture. Seven is. Where's the seventh jar? The seventh jar is in Christ. Right, he says at the Last Supper, he says that this new covenant that's been given, it's what? It's the cup of his blood poured out for the sins of many. So even as he's turning this water into wine, he's laying down the map that leads to him laying down his life for us, for you, for me. It's Christ and his blood that cleanse us. And he says, not only does he cleanse us of our sins, but he covers our shame. See, running out of food or drink at your party might be a, a, a social faux pas. It would maybe make people second guess coming to your party next time you invite them. But for the, the bridegroom and his family, this is a bigger deal. There, there's, 
archaeological evidence, there's writings that reveal to us that if you ran out of food and drink at your wedding feast, that you could be held liable in court. You could be sued for not living up to the standard that's been set. You, you, you didn't live up to the hospitality standard that there was in the law at that day. I mean, think about that. You didn't have enough food or drink. Someone didn't get what they needed, and they, they leave your party, and the next day you, 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 somebody shows up at your door, and they knock, and they ask your name, and you say, yeah, that's me, and they serve you. You've been served. You're getting sued because you didn't have enough wine at your wedding reception. But this feast they, that people have been invited to, it's a feast that that the whole town's invited to. It's a celebration that the bridegroom is bringing his bride to the home that he's prepared for them. And there's a standard. He didn't meet it. So Jesus steps in and, and, and changes this water to wine, not only restoring the joy, but, but he's covering their shame, their guilt of not being enough. How often do you think you're not enough? How often do you deal with that feeling and that, that shame that you just don't measure up? Think about being that bridegroom. He knew they had run out of wine. If, if Mary, the mother of Jesus, knew, he knew. They knew. Other people at the party probably knew. He's already feeling the weight of what's happened. And in steps Jesus. And he changes this water into wine and he restores the life of the party, but he also covers their shame. He covers our shame. He clothes us in his righteousness. Abundantly restoring the joy, but also saving them. Saving them. And lastly, it points us to an even greater wedding feast. It points us to an even greater wedding feast. Revelation 19 tells us of a feast so grand, so extravagant, that it's, that it's a blessing to even be invited. It's a blessing to even be invited. I get invited to a lot of weddings. I'm going to be honest with you. I don't think most of them are a blessing. It is. It's just, it's just true. It's time. Maybe if I'm really close to you and we're good friends, it's a blessing. I feel, feel blessed. But otherwise, I'm like, yeah, hey, I'm happy for you. I'll celebrate with you. But I wouldn't say it's a blessing. And in fact, you know, in that stage of life, I've, I've passed it now, but like right after college and all your friends and stuff like that are, are getting married and you're being asked to be a groomsman and things like that. I just made myself like unavailable. Because just when I had to spend money, rent a suit or a tux or whatever, buy a, a, a present and help pay for a bachelor party and all these other things, it wasn't a blessing, it was, it was a pain in the butt. I didn't even have that many friends that cared to like ask me to be in their wedding. I was thankful for that. My wife, on the other hand, it was like, man, we're just throwing away money. We had so many, like, bridesmaid dresses. We just moved. And I was like, man, can we just can we give these away? Does anybody want to buy these? Um, nobody did, so we just, they're at Goodwill if you're interested in them. But this, this feast that, that's described for us in Revelation 19 is one that's so great that blessed are those who are invited. And Jesus tells his disciples that he will not drink of the fruit of the vine again until that day when he drinks it with you, with me, in his Father's kingdom. He's waiting. He's waiting to celebrate until we're with him. 
he, he's waiting to, to uncork that really nice bottle that he has saved for special occasions until we're with him. See, this wedding at Cana, it points us to this, this, this feast that awaits us. You can always tell how, how great a celebration at a wedding, how, how great a wedding reception is going to be by the cocktail hour. You know, if there is one, and it's like open bar, it's already been paid for. You got the little guys walking around with like the mini crab cakes and, and other really nice, you know, delicious hors d'oeuvres. You're like, this is going to be a party. Really excited about it. This is going to be great. Or you come to, to my wedding and it's like, there's not a cocktail hour. Sorry. Like, this is what we got. Guys, the wedding at Cana is the cocktail hour. It's just, a, it's a picture of the feast that's to come. It's a picture that, that, that shows abundance greater than we could ever, ever understand. So it's a picture that, that, that shows his concern for our joy more than we could ever comprehend. And so it's with that hope that we walk through life as Christians. That, 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 that what's waiting for us at the other end is far more glorious than we can even fathom. And Jesus says, I wait to drink of the fruit of the vine again until you are there. Jesus tells a parable in the Gospel of Luke. Luke records it. It's about a party. And there's a, the master of the party, the master of the house is throwing this party and he sends his servants out to, to send out the invitations. And they come back and they report that there's a lot of people that can't come. Everybody you sent us out for, then they, they can't make it. There's a lot of excuses why people can't come to the party. And it ends with him saying, okay, well, look, you need to go. You need to go out into the fields and the country roads. You need to find whoever you can and invite them and bring them so my table, my table may be filled so that there will be life at the party. Folks, that's his call to us. He has sent his servants. He's given us the word that reveals to us his concerns for our joy, for abundance, his, his, his love to cover our shame. And he invites us to a party. He invites us to a table to feed us and nourish us and carry us until we sit at a table of a feast so grand and so great. So the question is, is are you full of excuses? Or do you heed his invite? And do you come to taste and see the joy and the life that's found in Christ? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come this evening and we rejoice in your great love for us. That you would give to us your word. You would give us to us the word incarnate in Christ Jesus who in his very life reveals to us your character, your nature, who reveals to us that you are a God who lays down his life, not just to forgive us our sins and reconcile us to yourself, but out of concern for our joy, out of concern for our shame and our guilt. We rejoice that you are a God of abundance. We can never outrun your grace your mercy, 
in your faithfulness. Pray all of this in Christ's name. Amen.